Ciao. Ciao. What do you want? In a podcast to you. Gotta talk about Giallo movies just for you. The only thing I'd like, I'd really like, is to meet you face to face. It'll happen sooner or later, but you'll have to recognize us. Thanks. However you disappoint me, duck. You throw a challenge my way. You don't have the guts to let me get there to watch the goings on. You wait till it's all over. Got it. The harbor. A phone booth sitting right near Pier 11. I'll get out the APB. Move, you bastard. Fifty-one. Fifty-one. Back to basics. Basically black. Oh no, it says basically back. I'm sorry. Yeah, if you're I'm watching the video. And um, go ahead. No, I was gonna say you are basically black. Yeah. With the exception of like skin That's color. That's what my wife tells me. <laughs> oh man, I wish my stuff was working. Uh. That's okay. They have pills for that. They're blue. <laughs> um, but seriously, we thought that after this uh, first 50 episodes went by, we have so many new listeners compared to what we did when we first started the show that maybe we should do a show about what the fuck this is about. Yeah, and, there you go. And that brings us to now. Can I say so, I miss I miss Eric? Can I say that? Yeah, you can. Can I agree with you? I, I, do, do you want to talk about wrestling? I mean, it's okay if you want to. To I'll be listen. honest, I haven't watched anything since the last episode. <laughs> I'll listen. So, I don't I know if I will contribute. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Don't worry about it. But um, so what's going on? Let's let's get through the hellos and thank yous. Happy New Year. <laughs> well, you know, um, what was I going to say? <laughs> I, totally, I totally lost my train of thought. Are we are we calling me Mr. Jalo Score now? Is that my official title? <laughs> Is that what we decided? If you want to be Mr. Jalo Score, you will be Mr. Jalo Score. Well, I mean, we'll put it to, you know, first of all, you know, we have a lot of new people on the uh, Facebook group, so we want to say hi, and um, thanks for joining up with the group and the discussion. There's been a lot of discussion lately on new things coming out, and Neo Jolly, and lots of cool stuff. Um, but we were listening to the intro, where originally it was Eric who said, uh, so listen, uh, the fa- Creep Creeperson and the Phantom Eric are going to take you on a ride. And then after I started with the group, it was, 
Creep Creeperson and the Phantom Eric are going to take you on a ride. And now we have to do Creep Creeperson and then like silence where the Phantom Eric part was. So because of all that, I guess we were talking about how let's just re-record that and give me a new name. And I don't like Chris at Jalo score and I don't like Jalo Chris and I don't like Jalo score Chris or whatever else you could come up with. So Mr. Jalo score was probably the most pathetic and acceptable thing I came up with. Um, but if anybody has a better idea, um, that's fine. Just suggest a way and we'll just name Chris. Just name me. <laughs> yeah, that'll be the new poll on the Facebook. But anyway. Um, Dude, you are, you are living dangerously, man. <laughs> so, yeah, we, um, we, we met, Creep and I met um, virtually um, a few weeks ago to talk about where we're headed and um, with the podcast. And hopefully, you know, uh, we'll have Eric back from time to time if he so is uh, inclined to talk about something specific and um, we may have some other people that will jump in and help us out with um, some of these films but uh, yeah like Creep said we thought it was um, kind of a good idea to um, kind of reboot the podcast to a certain extent and, and go back to basics which is again the name of the episode and talk about the giallo as a film cinematic format as a genre as a as a influence on uh, other films and mainstream films and why we're dedicating so much information and time to this um very little known group of films from the mid 70s uh, early to mid 70s um because we like it so much but why do we and you know so what is what is it all about so that's kind of what we're here to do today, or tonight that is, and kind of serves as a nice kind of springboard for people who are trying to get into the genre. Uh, we're not going to spoil any movies on this particular episode. We're not going to talk about any one film in particular. And so um, if people who are listening to this are interested in turning new people onto the genre, um, point them to episode 51 because um, we'll hopefully cover a lot of stuff um, in the next um, however amount of time it takes um, and uh, it should be enlightening and I think um, I've learned a lot about the genre since I started doing the podcast with Creep and with Eric um, a lot more than I knew before I started so or things my, my take on the film, the films that we cover, and the movement behind it, and the and the the context behind it has evolved as I've watched these films. So I think I have a new, fresher take on it since you know two or three years ago. So um, lot, um, we were starting the show, we were kind of reviewing these movies and comparing them to every kind of film. And after doing like the first ten, it was just like. These movies are so their own thing. We can't compare them to anything other than the other Jalo. So, um, yeah, that's true. And I think that you know, I think a lot of people come into the genre from that aspect. Um, you know, because you probably had some sort of gateway drug into Jalo, which was some sort of horror film, most likely, or some sort of 
some sort of stepping stone from mainstream slasher horror probably to Argento or maybe um, Torso is definitely a gateway drug into the, into the giallo uh, genre as well as some of the Argento films. And um, so everybody, I think, at this point in, in history comes into it with a lot of preconceptions. Um, and so it's, it's hard uh, when, you, when you try to kind of look at these films and decide whether you want to be critical of them or not and how critical do you want to get. There's a lot of, um, there, there are a lot of paradoxes and a lot of stumbling blocks to deal with because of who these movies were intended for originally and the context of the time they were put out and so on and so forth. We'll, we'll get into in, in a little while. Um, so should be hopefully not too dry of a discussion um, compared to what we, when we talk about, you know, um, Sister of Ursula and pegging and that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't expect it to be as outlandish as, um, you know, the cold-blooded beast episode. So, and um, for any of the live viewers, if you um, are watching the video feed and you would like to join our conversation or ask us a question, please use the Q&A app on the event page on Google+. Plus, and that way we will be able to see your questions and answer them immediately. If you do something different, I won't ever know. It's right around here somewhere. But Yes. Uh, so anyway, yes, um, what's going on? There's been a lot of people that have died yeah. uh, recently. And I think that most closest to our little group is Angus Scrim, who played the tall man in Phantasm. But uh, mm -hmm. I don't know about you, Creep. I was particularly taken, um, throw, thrown kind of aback by the whole Bowie thing. Um, you know, clearly that, clearly he Lemmy. was shrouded. Me, Lemmy, yep, Lemmy for yeah. sure. And then we heard about Glenn Fry this morning. I mean, it's never ending. But Bowie was kind of like um, a tough one to deal with, especially because he kind of left a death video behind, um, which kind of freaked me out. Um, and I had spent a day kind of just, I had taken that day off from work because I was sick. And uh, I woke up around 10 and, and found out that, that, that the Bowie news, and then I immediately found the uh the video and i just <laughs> i was in the wrong mood for the rest of the day basically um but i got over it i started watching a lot of tv and a lot of movies so um but what do you think creep i mean how do you feel about this bowie thing i mean it, it's not really related to giallo at all but the guy like no but his heyday i think was it, like mirrored the the time frame you know like from like 71 through 75 or 76 were like his like golden years i think yeah those that's were like true. My, favorite, my favorite releases from him came from that time yeah so um it's with that being said it's pretty close yeah but i, I mean to, to have the amount of i guess i don't know i don't know if you want to call it foresight or courage or whatever it was that he had to 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 take what was going on in his own life and turn it into art and not tell anybody what was going on, you know, until the end. The album come out like a couple days before. Right. Have so, you listened to that? Yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty it's pretty wild. Like he he recruited some jazz musicians that he had heard um, in like a New York City jazz club 
he apparently the, the the rumor was that he went into this jazz club unannounced and sat in the back and then after the set he left and he got in contact with the band and said i want you guys to record my next album and they were like holy shit it's david bowie but the um the black star video and song is like this epic avant-garde jazzy rocky kind of thing that i think they use for a tv show i'm not sure um but it's weird but then the video that he put out after that where he's laying in bed and dying and then there's another version of him that's outside the bed that's like trying to write down as many things as he can get out of his head as quickly as possible because he knows he's dying and then at the end of the video he walks backwards into this armoire and it's just like it's and he knew when he was making that whole video like that whole production he knew that this was you know going to be the thing that got released after he died and they they specifically did it that way from what i understand because the stuff had been recorded for a while and then it got released like right when he went into i guess his last couple of days so it's pretty it's it's like morbid but at the same time it's like inspirational it's it's weird it's like kind of creepy but kind of not which is kind of like david bowie always was uh, always was kind of sort of creepy and sort of not creepy you know what i mean like he always kind of had that weird vibe, but at any rate, um, that's Bowie. But um, yeah, in other news, we need to tip our hats to our um, our favorite uh, Giallo composer, Mr. Ennio Morricone, who won a Golden Globe for Hateful Eight, um, and he's got a nomination for the same reason uh, with the Academy Awards. So we'll see. Um, if any of that uh, it was it was kind of cool that uh, Tarantino went up and just kind of talked about you know how great Morricone was and or is and um, you know just kind of went up and, and said what he needed to say whenever he gets on stage and starts yelling and, and stuff it's it's usually funny but um, I don't know are you when, are you watching any of these films did you see Hateful Eight did you see any of these other yeah, films I saw, that are, uh, I saw Hateful Eight um, and I really like the music in it, but I don't like the songs that are in it. Yeah, I'm with you on like that. The songs that were in it were, I thought, really oddly placed. But... Yeah, they, they didn't seem right at all. I, I I agree. Like I'm like, well, clearly, you know, it's not all a Morricone soundtrack. It's got these recorded songs, but where did they come from? I don't know. I don't know if they were, were they recorded for the soundtrack or if, or if Tarantino found them in some old obscure something something because he likes to do that but um i watched it um on a day when i was just um just stuck in bed i think that that film is such a cool film to watch like if you're in in a snowstorm because it's like you know that you know that feeling i don't know how how much of that kind of feeling you get in 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 los angeles but there's a feeling when you know that there's an impending storm a snowstorm coming and you're going to be kind of um held up in the house for a while and it, it's like a it's like a cozy comforting kind of feeling like you're not going anywhere you don't need to go to work um you don't need to go do anything because you're stuck in the house you can just watch tv and it's comforting and that's what that movie kind of made me felt like the whole time like i know here there's all these gangsters and they're all dangerous but they're all kind of cooped up together and they yeah. kind of have to all deal with each other for the next you know couple of days or so but um, I thought Sam Jackson was real good in it, and uh, everybody who was in it was really good. Like yeah. uh, 
I ha- I knew nothing about it going into it. I had no idea wh- what it was about. I didn't yeah, me neither. And um, as kind of slowish as it was in the beginning, it really doesn't seem like a three-hour movie, which no. is really a- awesome considering it's one location, basically. Yeah. Well, so, and that, uh, that's the question. Like, why? I mean, I know, I, I don't know that there's really an answer to this, but with all of the hoopla surrounding the 70 millimeter cameras, but really the film was just filmed inside in one location for majority yeah, I don't know of it. Why that was done like that. I mean, just out of any movie he's done, that would be the last movie where that would be important, I would right. think. Yeah, I mean, this was kind of like a, a th- th- it was the same kind of context as Reservoir Dogs, where they were all just yeah. stuck in that, in that hangar or that shelter or whatever. But, you know, who knows what uh, why Quentin does what he does. So, um, but I liked it. I thought it was good. I'm watching. I'm also watching uh, Mr. Robot. I don't know if you've seen that show. Um, no. It's uh, it's on USA Network. It's about. It's basically like. Uh, it's basically a mix between the Matrix and Fight Club and the movie called Pi. Did you ever see Pi? Yeah. Um, so it's basically like computer hackers trying to kind of rid the world of corporate evil kind of thing. Um, but it's really like a fever dream kind of um, hallucinogenic kind of thing going on. Like the main character, you don't know. You know what's really happening and what's part of his weird psyche. It's a good film. It's a good, uh, good series. I've only watched a few few episodes, but I like it. It's really cool. It, it does remind me a little bit too much of Fight Club, but it's got enough going for it that it's you know it's not a total ripoff. It's not like I'm watching it going, oh Tyler Durden already did this, you know. So yeah, but um, yeah. So I mean, yeah, lots of stuff I've going been on. Watching, I've been watching a lot of westerns lately. Oh yeah, nice. For some reason, yeah. I don't know. It just kind of happened. Regular old <sighs> westerns or Italian style? All of the above. All of the above. They kind of all yeah. mix together eventually. Yeah. Well, I got a copy of this a little while ago. This is Troy Howarth. Uh, he's gonna kill us because every time we say his name, we say it wrong. It's either Howarth or his name. Or you wrong. What's that? Oh yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you haven't said it. Yet. That's why yep. every time I mention this guy's book, Creep just keeps quiet because he doesn't want yep. to say that. Anyway, um, this is the second volume of So Deadly, So Perverse, um, from 1974 to 2013. Um, and I have to admit that I have not spent a lot of time with it simply because I've been busy with a lot of other things. But um, it is worth, uh, I would say it's worth the money. It's its pricey, but it's worth it. There's a lot of information in here. Uh, Troy did a lot of research. And the paper stock is of higher quality than volume one. So that's um, a nice little upgrade compared to the last one, which I also liked. Um, and now I'm not really sure I understand, but there is a volume three in the works, and I don't know what constitutes the films that will be in volume three since this one ends at 2013. I don't know if it's um, 
offshoots or obscure things or you know because he's not going to make another book for just two years of films because there haven't been that many to come out so um but yeah if you're if you're interested I i heard there's a scathing eyeball review in there oh yeah that's right we have to um when we get to our redemption tour and eyeball will be on that redemption tour for sure and of course we have to give credit where credit is due because redemption tour is eric's um phrase he came up with the idea of going back and revisiting jolly that we didn't originally like um and for me that's going to be eyeball because i didn't really like it at all and the other one is going to be uh, black belly the tarantula um i really need to give those two a fair shake again um but yeah supposedly there's a really awful awful review of eyeball in this new so deadly so perverse so we'll have to incorporate it into our episode when we do that i won't spoil it now by looking it up um but yeah but i've been spending a lot of time with this book we've discussed it on this podcast before as well as uh on the group a lot this is uh mike mikel i think it's mikel it might be just michael but it's mikel coven's book called la dolce morte vernacular cinema and the italian giallo film um, I pulled a lot of quotes from this for our discussion tonight. Uh, and again, I don't want to get too academic, but if you're interested in a 100% academic um, analysis of the Giallo, um, it, it's really easy to recommend this book because there isn't any other English language academic analysis of the giallo besides this book as far as i can tell the good news is is that it really is well written and um you know for it being i don't know if it was part of a dissertation or if it was just uh for the sake of having another book to write um for Mikel's just his own um resume um it does get into very detailed um uh uh, with, with regard to the history and, and uh, quoting a lot of different um, sources of material for how he came to his um, conclusions about since that to... one sorry since that one is so academic what book do you think would be a good um, side piece with that that's more like these are movies and these are what they're about and this is why they're cool yeah and that's a good question because you have right there is i don't want to say it's dry it is dry it's not something you could just like thumb through and go oh blah 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 it's yeah it builds upon the page before it well this i mean this book you're exactly right it's definitely dry when you're when you're when you're considering the source material, a film like Strip Nude for Your Killer isn't something you nat- nat- you would naturally equate with higher education and, um, you know... Uh, Every chance he gets. Master's thesis in film and cinematic study. However, um, it's a really interesting genre because there's so many different kind of levels and facets to the way you can approach it and this book will satisfy the people like me like i certain sometimes i get into a very geeky mood 
about this about about the giallo as well as many of the other types of film um, or cinematic type genres that are are coming out of Italy or wherever else in the world. And this book really does what it needs to do for that satisfy that urge. But um, for people who are looking for something a little less um, academic, um, I would go back to Troy's books. Um, because basically these are, as you can see, uh, we've got the bare-ass woman with the knife and the, uh, the black glove and some blood. So it's, you know, a lot different between these two. And this book really just, again, you know, unless you want to get into the real details of this kind of discussion, you can sum up what a giallo is in a couple of sentences and then what takes up the rest of this book is a survey of the films themselves so the best you know it's great to recommend reading materials for giallo fans but um reading materials are secondary to the films themselves so the best way to understand and learn about jolly is to actually start watching them and we will be giving out some um good recommendations as we go through um and then while you're watching them you know if you have a feeling about them or if you want to find out more information, this book is great. So you, you can kind of have it nearby, pick it up and, and thumb through it. Excuse me. There was um, a book that came out a while ago called um, Blood and Black Lace. It's actually called Blood and Black Lace. The, uh, the definitive, something about the definitive book of uh, Italian sex and horror films or something like that. And that was put out by... Um, uh, an author named Adrian Luther Smith and that was the book that I got a long time ago when I first was introduced uh, to the genre and it's long out of print but if you can find that that's also a very good one and what these guys typically do oh and we also have to um, we also have to we also have to quote our friend um, uh, we have to plug our friend Richard Schmidt who did the Jallo uh, meltdown um, so all of these books are like surveys and what everybody does when they write these books, which is really the cool and really um, not only is it cool, but it's really um, nice of them to not spoil the films. They write up a description, which is a brief synopsis of the film, but then they only go so far and then they just kind of um, give the, the additional paragraphs that they add on to the end of the, the discussion of a particular film, a really just kind of analysis of the film and um, talk about you know um, how one film relates to another or how did this film um, get influenced or influenced any other films and who was in it and what was the soundtrack like and what was the script like um, without revealing anything about the um, the identity or the whatever the mystery is um, so any of these books are great um, there's plenty of internet resources um, that you can also go to uh, I highly recommend um, the jalloscore.com uh, which is my website, uh, which is a weird take on the whole thing where we take the tropes uh, of the classic giallo and put points to them. And then uh, we take a film and see how many points it gets. So there are plenty of spoilers on my website. So I don't recommend looking up films on my website until after you've watched them. Um, but the long answer to your question, Creep, is that um, the, the, the So Deadly, So Perverse books are probably the the best um, way to get your hands on some some reading material uh, whenever you can't actually be in front of a TV or um, some some sort of screen to watch the films. 
Um, these books are probably been the best thing. And uh, Richard Schmidt's um, book Jalon Meltdown is cool because he basically decided, hey, I'm gonna. I'm gonna do like a three-day marathon and watch as many Jolly as I possibly can, and I'll take notes on all of them. And uh, after um, the first of these marathons, uh, he blogged uh, the results. And then after that, um, they got he, he did a few more, and he got enough interest to publish a book. So um, it's kind of a stream, more of a stream of consciousness uh, kind of thing as opposed to Troy's books, but. Uh, very uh, entertaining and just as valid with regard to the genre. So that's that. So what is Jalo, sir? What is a Jalo? We're, we're getting into that. We're, we're doing it now. Um, so again, I said this before, not too long ago, I got a lot of information out of Mikel's book. Uh, this one here called La Dolce Morte. Um, and I'm going to quote from it uh, a lot um, in the next few minutes, just because I really think that uh, he does a great job of trying to um, give everybody an idea of what we're talking about when we're talking about these types of films. So, uh, in its basic, um, in its basic essence, giallo is Italian for yellow. And um, the reason why the films are referred to a color is because uh, in the late 1920s, there were uh, Italian uh, translations of paperback novels from mystery writers like Agatha Christie and Edgar Wallace and Arthur Conan Doyle. And they were published with these big, bright yellow covers. Um, and the publishing house was Mondadori. And apparently they had, uh, from what right I got here, did you get one? So here's one right here for oh, you. There do we you go. have one? I do. I have yeah. one uh, from our good friend Al, who was our Italian yep. correspondent who sent us a few of them. And it's written like the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and if we had, uh, if I could read Italian, I'd read it. But uh, So apparently Mondadori, um, um, broke kind of into the into the uh, business by publishing uh, romance novels with bright blue covers. This is something I didn't know. Um, so their Jalo series was just an extension of the idea of color coding uh, things. So um, and and uh, Mikkel Coven goes on to talk about how. Um, in British or uh, if you went into a British or a North American bookstore and you wanted to find an Agatha Christie novel, you would look in the mystery section. Uh, however, in an Italian bookstore, that section is called giallo. Um, so by its basic definition, it's a mystery. And probably you could even go as so far as saying a mystery without any sort of real supernatural context. So and a mystery that it, that is exists in the real world. I mean, you could say murder mystery, but there are jolly that um, don't revolve around anybody getting killed, um, or, and they're still considered mysteries because there's something sinister going on. There's some sort of suspenseful thing happening, um, and there's a mystery surrounding all of that, and they fall. It still falls into the jalo kind of characteristics. So. Um, 
basically uh, what um, Coven writes is that um, they were very popular uh, as literary um, art or as literary recreation basically during this period, but they were seen by the government as corrupt. And so the filmmakers of that time um, did not look at these books as potential source material for films um, for, for quite a while. Um, so then the question is, well, how did um, the giallo transform itself from a literary genre into a cinematic one? And there are a few different opinions about this. Um, most people and most um, surveys uh, that talk about giallo as a film will, will basically say that Mario Bava uh, put out a film in 1962 called The Girl Who Knew Too Much, which is a, basically the name was a spinoff of a Hitchcock film of The Man Who Knew Too Much. Um, and that was really the first proper giallo film. Now, um, Coven says that there's a film called Ossessione from 1942 that was loosely based on The Postman Always Rings Twice. Um, as that being the first giallo film, although it's not recognized as a giallo by most um, cinematic people. Um, and meanwhile, he, in his book, in, in this book, uh, Troy, our own Troy Howard, Howard is also quoted uh, in one of his, uh, I, I would assume it's probably his Bava book, because um, I didn't look up the footnotes, but Troy is, is quoted as talking about uh, a film called Cota Sic, I can't even pronounce it, uh, Corto Sicutio Sicur- uh, from 1943 as being the first giallo. But um, again, we're talking about really super obscure ideas here um, compared to um, Mario Bava, who really kind of everybody settles on as the person who kind of turned uh, things around and, and and got people's attention with this particular format. So well, I think too, a lot of it has to do with the fact that in between the 30s and the 50s, um, the Krimi films in Germany doing all the Edgar Wallace titles that were all also the yellow cover books in Italy <clears throat> yep. um, was a big like probably like not a turning point but like holy shit they're making movies off of these books that we're reading and there's a bunch more you know we should maybe take a stab at this as well kind of thing and on top of that germany and italy um had a lot of uh hand-in-hand dealing in the cinema department as this whole thing went on as he crunches so, um, so uh, like co-productions, basically. So the yeah. Germans and the Italians kind of worked together, and I think there was a lot of Spanish um, film film um, film houses also that got involved in this. So and it was an idea to kind of make things a little bit more international. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, and and Coven definitely talks about the cr- the creamy uh, films as well. Um, but basically. Um, the idea here is that Bava put out a film in 1962 called The Girl Who Knew Too Much, which Uh-oh. 
think Chris froze. I don't know if I'm frozen. My internet's still working. Well, as he might be saying, um, in 1962, Mario Bava put out The Girl That Knew Too Much. And um, as much as I might be disagreeing with Chris right now, but as much as that was considered the first the first Jalo uh, film, um, basically based upon a lot of the little things that would come up and all sorts of stuff. He crashed, so I will continue this. Um, basically, the staples that hadn't come yet, like the garish colors and the um, overt violence and all this other stuff, wouldn't happen until a few years later. I think it was 68 with um, his next film, Blood and Black Lace. Um, but with The Girl Who Knew Too Much, you had the a bunch of staples being made like a strange girl in a strange land okay um someone flying somewhere um to get to this weird place um you had a gloved killer uh we had some pov shots from the killer um and then you had this whole thing with your red herrings your the people who are helping you, are they really helping you or are they pushing you farther away? Which again, a lot of this just happens to be more uh, mystery tropes than anything else. But as we move in from that film into Blood and Black Lace, it's the same kind of thing, but everything gets amped up. And probably the thing that changed the most from just a murder mystery to the Jalo film as, as what it was was how violent the murders were how gruesome the deaths were how much violence and carnage was actually shown on screen and the thing that's neat about it is that especially Blood and Black Lace you could look at it and see all of these things but the film doesn't lose any of its beauty Whereas, basically, from like 19, I don't know, 76 on, a lot of movies that were doing these horrific things would focus more on that than the beauty and the art of the actual filmmaking. And as years went by, got farther and farther away from doing anything like that. So, let me see what Chris's notes were here and let me see if I could jump into some more of this um, let's see here no I can't so for those of you watching the video feed this part of the show will be quite dull because I'm just going to be talking waiting for Chris to get back this is Chris's bit in the show and he's not here to do it and um uh-oh, I think he's back. There he is. Jesus Christ. Okay, so I went through um, the <laughs> Girl Who Knew Too Much and Blood and Black Lace, and I was about to move into Argento, but... Um, <laughs> I really just 
intentionally crashed my computer so that I could eat five or six handfuls of popcorn while it rebooted. Sounds so, like it. Sorry about that. Um, yeah. So thank you. Thank you for, um, you know, it was a lot easier when there was two people to talk while I rebooted. <laughs> um, so um, I did okay. At any there, rate. There, there was a couple, a couple of boners in there, Ooh. but nothing bad. Only a couple? That's great. Um, so, yes. So, so Baba, the godfather, the grandfather of the, the Jalo format, um, but the, you know, the, the man who really put the film uh, into the, the spotlight was Dario Argento, because basically he took the, um, the thematic idea of the amateur detective and the person who witnesses a crime or a murder uh, who wasn't supposed to and combine that with the visual um, aspects of the giallo which is the strangulations and the stabbings and um, the killer's disguise with the black leather gloves and the over overcoat and the hat um, the one thing I do want to um, just interject here, um, a lot of people don't seem to realize that in between Blood and Black Lace and Bird with the Crystal Plumage, that there were a shit ton of movies that came out that were Jalo-esque. Um, yeah. And you can't overlook those because some of those are amazing. You have a ton from um, Lindsay, you have Fulci, you have Morbava, um, there's just a ton of really great pre-Argento Jalo films from that period that are just amazing that yep. everyone should look at. Yep, absolutely agreed. And I, I thought that was interesting when I was looking through um, this information earlier today in that, yeah, there is a huge uh, six-year gap between Blood and Black Lace and Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which is the film that we're talking about with Argento and um, basically taking those two ideas and pushing them together. And I don't know, because I haven't seen uh, every single film in the, the survey uh, between 64 and 70, but I don't know how many of them featured the killer is out there kind of motif i don't a lot of them were more suspense jolly like uh one on top of the other and um, there are some there are some but the thing that makes it more refreshing to some who probably have been seeing the same thing over and over again is that since the conventions weren't set in stone yet and what they were mimicking hadn't been like bastardized by how much money it made at the box office right a lot of the ideas in those movies were quite new and fresh, even though they were just ripoffs of Hitchcock right. and Agatha Christie and stuff like that. But it was—it's still a really neat um, thing to do, especially if you've just been watching a bunch of stuff from seventy to seventy-three, and you're like, "One fuck, all these movies are just sort of the same thing." Just throw on something from like sixty-eight, and it'll totally cleanse your palate for sure yeah absolutely there, there's a film that i saw and i haven't seen it in a while it's called in the folds of the flesh or in the folds of flesh which um, is one of the greatest titles i've ever heard of in my <laughs> life <laughs> this is for sure 
Um, I don't even know what it was about, but it wasn't a murder mystery at all. It was this weird family who were, they were basically spent most of the film trying to either double cross one another or I don't even remember, like frame or blackmail each other into one thing or another. Um, and the whole movie took place in this one house. And so, um, you know, once you get to Argento and Bird with the Crystal Plumage, um, you start to talk about, you know, what is it that characterizes this genre? And then if you look, if you read a little bit further into Coven's book, he starts to talk about this thing called the Filone. And I won't go into too much detail, but the idea of a Filone, which means vain, in other words, vain in your arm, not um, I'm, you're so vain, um, basically translates into in the tradition of or in the vein of. And so the way that he looks at these films, and I guess, you know, it's not just Coven, but many of the contemporaries, they look at this idea of, um, well, Bava kind of came up with these two films with the unlikely witness becoming the detective and the giallo killer disguise with the black hat. And then Argento did Bird with the Crystal Plumage in the vein of Mario Bava's two films. And then all of the films that came after Bird were done in the vein of Argento's Bird. So we tend to think of the giallo movement in terms of a river um, kind of branching off into smaller and smaller streams and taking with it some of the things that influenced it to begin with, but making it a little bit different as it goes along and as it branches off. Um, and, and, and so that's kind of why, you know, when you're looking at this academic study of the giallo, um, Coven doesn't refer to it as a genre because genre is really too big of a category for or for the for the giallo. So, like anything that would be considered a mystery is a, is a giallo. Um, that would maybe probably be the genre. But um, they start. He starts to talk about um, this Filoni idea or in the vein of, and I think it works really well for how to classify these movies because. He then goes on to talk about what is the classic giallo and the idea of the killer is out there. And, and footnote, and this is probably obvious to most people who have watched or listened to our podcast before, but the classic giallo with the killer dressed up in the black you know, gloves with the knife uh, who's killing people with the amateur detective, that's my favorite flavor of giallo. Um, it, I like all of the films from the period and from this kind of group of films, but the ones where it's, you know, um, the killer's out there, the detective is one step behind and the clues lead them into different directions and stuff. Basically the way that Argento kind of outlined it in Bird, those are my personal favorite kind of formulas. And so, um, again, Coven is calling these classic giallo and examples of these would be Case of the Bloody Iris, What Have You Done to Solange, uh, Who Saw Her Die, uh, Seven Bloodstained Orchids, um, The Red Queen Kill Seven Times, uh, The Fifth Chord, uh, even as far as uh, Strip Nude for Your Killer and Deep Red and Eyeball. These are all kind of the classic giallo um, where the amateur detective is trying to solve the, 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 trying to solve the mystery. And, you know, you can get even more into 
pigeonholing the thematic elements more like the the amateur detective just happens to be from uh, a foreigner from a different country who just happens to accidentally witness something that he wasn't supposed to witness now not all of the films that i just ran through have that excuse me have that foreigner accidental situation but they all have the amateur detective um so again even within the classic giallo there are flavors upon flavors upon flavors um the other um the other few flavors that coven talks about are the 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 jolly that are in the vein of the police procedural and basically there's not much difference to those except for the fact that the central character is the police investigation instead of the amateur detective um and so there are films like the pajama girl case and uh what have they done to our daughters which um the re the the revealing of the killer uh and the mystery surrounding who the killer is is little little less important although it's still a mystery um and what's more important is the investigation itself uh and the, the actions of the um of the police um and how do you feel sits on that line well that's the thing like the, you know when you think about true policio tesco films um if you're looking at something that's a little bit more giallo-esque they're kind of more hybrids and crossovers like um so sweet so dead was really a giallo film but the the main character trying to solve the film trying to solve the mystery was the police inspector or black belly the tarantula is the same issue uh, we've got some real giallo thematic elements with the killer's disguise and uh the music and the set pieces and the murder sequences, which are very gory, but it's a police investigation. So those are really kind of with Black Billy though. It starts off as a police investigation, and then halfway through, it's almost like it doesn't even matter that he's the cop. Yeah, I think you're happening right. to him just like how it would any other kind of investigator, amateur detective. Yeah, I think you're right. And I have to give that film another watch to really kind of understand where it changes. Um, but I think the difference between the two is that, you know, if you are police, uh, if you work for the police force, you have at your disposal all of those police resources. And I think that yeah. in Black Billy, like you were saying, I think the main character, eventually he becomes... Um, he's just out on his own trying to solve this case instead of it being like with um my dear killer which was the one with um george hilton with the mustache and he had the full cooperation of the entire police force at his disposable just at his disposal even though this is considered a um this film my dear killer is definitely considered a classic giallo in about every uh, every sense except for the fact that the the main um protagonist is a police inspector so uh it's definitely a blurry you know gray area when you start to to break these things into try to put them into neat little buckets um and they weren't really ever intended to be put into neat little buckets let's be honest um the only other types that coven mentions are the suspense thriller jolly which we we talked about and they kind of they kind of started gaining a foothold before Argento came along. So the perversion story and some of the other um, Umberto Lenzi films that came after um, 
Blood and Black Lace, but before Bird, um, they kind of have a little bit more of a, you know, the criminal activities, murder, blackmail, adultery, and incest are internally driven, uh, according to Coven. So the films tend to feature fewer settings and locations, restricting most of the action to one or two locations, um, which th those films are good. But one of the things I really like about Jolly is um, the urban landscape and all of the things that go on in like the, at the time, modern um, Italian or, or urban, if it's not specifically in Italy, like Spain or um, London or what have you. Um, uh, and then- Cause yeah, like, I, could, I could throw like three more subcategories in there through that, which is the urban film, the rural film and the travel film. You know, because, like, your urban ones are going to be your urban ones, obviously. Right. Your rural ones are more like uh, House of Laughing Windows. Uh, uh, we just did one not too don't, long ago. Don't Torture Duckling. Don't Torture Duckling. But then, like, your travel ones, like Eyeball or um, what do you call that one? Uh, Footprints on the Moon, even. Mm -hmm. um, or you can also... Like you could say you uh, case of the scorpion's tail where they start in london and then they go to greece and then yeah. they go to barcelona or something like that yep. not barcelona they go to uh, majorca or something um yeah but the cat the set what were you saying the cat um seven deaths in a cat's yeah. eye well because you could even have like a gothic ones right you know, like uh the, oh, the fuck's wrong with me the chick with the no face and the red cape. Uh, red oh, Queen. Jesus yeah. Christ, why was that so hard? Yeah, Red Queen. Red Queen had a had a gothic yeah, a gothic element. Uh, I know why it was hard because it was a terrible movie. Now. Um, and uh, Slaughter Hotel. Slaughter Hotel. Yeah. Well, then you know, there's also these films like um, All the Colors of the Dark, which was all about the satanic cult. Yeah. Um, and then there was um, The Short Night of Glass Dolls, which I don't know if you've seen. Um, revolves around um, satanic cult as well. And even if you want to go as far as to talk about Argento's phenomena, which is kind of at its essence a giallo mystery, um, you have the main character who has this telekinetic power to get bugs to help her, um, whether or not that was a good um, plot device or not remains to be seen but it was definitely something that was used to make the story a little different than all the jolly that preceded it so um but i think that you know it's which what's interesting about this whole thing is that you know in retrospect in in the year 2015 uh, and even, you know, a decade or two before, we tend to um, get really academic about our films. And we'll, when we look back at some of the filmmakers and, and um, from the time period where they were discovering things and breaking new ground. And spaghetti westerns are considered to be part of the high art of uh, cinema to a certain extent, whereas the Jolly are either considered to be exploitation or just lower class. And the reason why they are is because they were intended to be exploitation and um, 
lower class. I mean, the idea was that they needed to finance, again, I'm, I'm quoting, I'm kind of paraphrasing Coven's book, but the Italians needed to finance their high art cinema, right? They needed to finance the, um, the, the, uh, give me a, give me a, uh, Italian filmmaker who's real famous. I can't even, yeah. So Fellini and, and people who would go to see those kinds of films. Um, I guess it's kind of like, very um, analogous to what we have today where unfortunately now it's big budget but uh, the films it's kind of I guess the reverse where they spend a lot of money on these big budget dumb films um, so that the actors and the directors can go on and and make an art film that that they never are going to make any money out of and that's the way that kind of Hollywood works now but it looks like it was the reverse back then where they needed to make this money um, from these third-run cinemas that would show these exploitation features on a regular basis in order to finance their high art cinema. And so if you think about, you know, the context of when these films were shown, you had the Jolly films, you had what they, I forget what the name of it was, but it basically was those sword and sandal, you know, rip-offs of, of uh, whatever, whatever the sword and sandal American film, Hollywood film was that they, that they ripped off. Um, and the spaghetti westerns and the Policio Tesco films and the horror films, um, there was all this quick turnaround. There was all this flavor of the month, and um, these films would just go straight to the third-run cinemas, and they would they would recycle, um, you know, one or two or three or four times a week. There would be new uh, films to come out, and so <clears throat> when you start talking about uh, analysis of these films and probably over analysis of these films way beyond the filmmaker's original intention um, you have to consider the original audience and so Coven kind of talks about um, what the original you know theater going audience was like to go see a giallo and um, or any of these other types of movies and um, Basically, um, I'll give you a a quick quote from the book. Um, The audience of the third third run cinemas was more like a television audience than than like the first run cinema audience. So the viewer, generally male, went to the cinema nearest to his house uh, after dinner at around 10 o'clock in the evening and the program or whatever was being featured at the cinema for that evening would change almost every other day. And so the cinema goer wouldn't bother to find out what was playing. He would just make his way down to the movie theater and he wouldn't make any effort to arrive at the beginning of the film. Uh, He would talk to his friends during the showing um, whenever he felt like it, um, except when there were bits of the film that grabbed his attention. Um, people were coming and going and changing seats throughout the performance all the time. And, you know, this is, I, I always, um, I always like to listen to my parents talk about what it was like when they went to the movies, because this is the same idea in that, you know, some people would, you would get there after the movie started and then you would just stay because they would replay it again and you could watch the beginning or see whatever it was you missed if you came late. Um, and they would show newsreels and they would show cartoons and, so, you know, but the idea was, I guess, that at some point 
some of these movies were demanded more attention and those were the ones where it was an event to go to the movies and you got dressed up and this whole thing was happening but this wasn't what was happening um where these films were being shown so um it's it's really an interesting idea that again we spend a lot of time and attention um criticizing or scrutinizing a lot of the frames of these films um down to the script and the plot holes and the, the um the issues with continuity and the issues with um uh some of the acting and the dubbing and of course that's you know you bring in the whole international audience side of things which makes things even more um hard to kind of uh pin down um but that's where it's that's where these movies are originally coming from what i find to be the most interesting is that there are legitimate reasons to talk about these films as more than just crappy one-offs or just you know recycled films like there's there there are some aspects of them especially probably more than anything would be the music that goes into um these films because they spend you know there, there's a lot of time and attention put into the to the themes that were composed for these films that i think go beyond you know your typical uh third run uh popcorn it, film it goes back to the whole idea that even third run movies back in the 70s were made by people who knew how to make film whereas today the people who are making direct-to-DVD or direct-to-video um, or even fucking direct-to-YouTube films. Most of them just have a fucking iPhone and have no fucking idea about composition or anything or actually how to make a movie. So when you look at what a third-run movie was back in the 70s compared to what a shit movie is now, it's like a whole different fucking world. And that's partly because of the technology, right? Because in a sh- it's no, just... No, it's just it's, that people knew they were they learned how to make those movies. Because a lot of the people who were making these movies that were third-run movies were also the people who were working on the B unit on the last Fellini movie. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, they were on huge productions. They know the art. They know how to light. They know how to fuck they just know how to do their job Mm -hmm. whereas now including myself i didn't go to fucking film school and a lot of other people out there who are making movies right now didn't go to film school they have no fucking idea how the fuck to do anything but they do it and make a poster and get it on netflix or something like that and that's why there's so many shit fucking movies (laughs) on fucking netflix fucking Amazon shit. <laughs> well, I, you know, we'll, we'll kind of uh, revisit this when we talk about the Neo Giallo because it's a very interesting discussion about where the film, where this particular type of film um, has ended up and where, it, where, it's, where it's eventually progressed to where it is now, which is uh, different than how it started obviously um yeah so you know that's really um a good <clears throat> i think introduction for most people again there's more a lot more information in coven's book if you're so inclined this 
all of this that we just talked about really came from the first chapter and then maybe a little bit of the second chapter where he talks about um the uh the context um of the giallo in in um, italian cinema in, at, the, at the time period um but the book goes on to discuss um uh, all sorts of shit. all sorts of stuff the killer's identity um the amateur detective um murder like to suck penis when you're watching <laughs> your films <laughs> um you might have I don't know. yeah um am i jumping into my bit now yeah so um i guess again uh you know for anybody who's interested in this list of films um that we've covered so far that basically go from 1962 up until uh 1975 or 78 or so um i'll post them up on i guess we'll put them on the facebook group so that uh people can can uh, look them up and see which ones they want to see a lot of these are available on youtube um there is a what the hell is that is it especially if you know how to speak italian yeah yeah this is true there I can't remember what the name of that Roku channel was that I found the other day. I don't know if it was Grindhouse or something, but they have a ton of Jolly on their channel, uh, and it's a free movie channel. Um, but uh, you know, so these films are are a lot easier to find than they used to be uh, because you needed to get some sort of a VHS bootleg or find it on Laserdisc or something of that sort. And now it's a lot easier to get them. So um, Creep is going to now talk about. Um, his part, which basically is, you know, the the evolution of the film um, after this particular initial heyday, this golden age, and well, I thought I was doing the culture, and it, yeah, and how did it affect um, the culture at the time, and, <laughs> and how did it uh, affect the, the the culture of? of well, basically, uh, I I did some research and. Um, I got into it. You did, and I learned a bunch of stuff that I didn't know before. So um, this is as new to me as it is to you. So, <laughs> did you know that Italy was a monarchy until 1948? Did you know that? I, thought, I did not. I thought it was a fascist dictatorship. Is that the same thing? I have no clue because <laughs> I'm confused now. But anyway. So the first Republic era of Italy um, basically starts from 1948 and moves until 1992. And a lot happens through here, but again, we have the end of World War II, Mussolini getting killed or whatever, the monarchy crumbling. So through the 50s and 60s, Italy was kind of coming into its own, reinventing itself, trying to figure out what the fuck it was it was doing. And the, I can't remember the name of the political party. It was like the Christian Democracy or um, something like that. They basically ran Italy from, for 40 years, basically. Um, It was a political party 
that was running against a socialist party and a communist party. And um, as the 60s moved on, our government, the American government, started getting involved in the Italian politics, saying we don't want there to be any communists in control in Italy, so we're going to start giving you money. We're going to start making propaganda films. We're going to start doing all of this shit to keep communism out of Italy. And I don't know if that was the clincher as to Italy's relationship with America, but I feel like that was around the time when Italy went um, headlong into looking at everything that that we were doing over here, especially film, and trying to come up with a way to make that for themselves over there. So, as the Okay, Chris, I'm unmuting you now. Swallow that. Swallow that last piece of turkey. Uh-oh. It looks like I can't unmute him. Can you unmute you? Hello. There you go. Hi. So anyhow, um, right around this time was the first really big economic growth that Italy had ever seen. And um, in history, in the Italian history books, they called this period the miracle. And just like how um, in American textbooks, we had the New Deal that got us out of the depression, supposedly, um, this miracle that was going on with Italy's economy um, really made a lot of people happy. And from the thing that I think is really important to see here is that from 1968 to, I think, 1975, the, um, we'll say the minimum wage. I don't think that's, I think it's the wages all across the board. But the wage went up 75%, and that's the, the greatest influx of um, that to that date. Now, this is going on at the exact same time that these movies are coming out. So, at the same time, only 16% of Italy had televisions. So when you have this big thing where money is becoming more abundant than it ever had been before, um, people have money to spend on stuff, and not many people have televisions, these third-run theaters, or movie theaters in general, um, was probably one of the biggest things for people to have at that time. Now, by the mid to late 70s, it was something like 60 to 70% of households had televisions. So you could see how just in that one decade, um, the market for the cinema had completely changed altogether. And that's probably why a lot of the people who were making these movies went either to the Polizio Tetsuko things or to actual television. And the thing is, as you were talking about the flavor of the month, 
in the mid to late 60s, a lot of these people that were making Jalo films in the 70s were all making spaghetti westerns. So it's not like any of these directors, with maybe the exception of Argento, were just making movies that they really wanted to make. Everyone else was making movies that were in demand at the time. Right. Yeah. So, so, so then Argento is kind of in a weird position because <clears throat> I guess, you know, if he's able to make only the movies he wants to make, that kind of alludes to the fact that he was privileged to a certain extent. And I think we talked about that before, like his father was a producer and he worked on uh, he worked on the screenplay for one of the more famous spaghetti westerns. I can't remember which one it is. Uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, maybe. Um, and so then you have to ask the question, like, was Argento, did Argento want to be the next Fellini and he wasn't good enough or he he wasn't considered by the people at that time to be good enough and so he decided well, I mean, look at what he did after four flies what was the movie he did after four flies it was called like the one that no one's seen or heard of cena Giorgante. it was like some historical comedy or something yeah well there you go like it's like when wes craven tried to make uh music of the heart or whatever the fuck that shit fuck movie was <laughs> Nobody gave two shits because he was a horror guy. And as much as Wes Craven didn't want to make horror films his whole life, he right. had no fucking choice. Right, but it, if you have somebody fun. like Fulci, who he makes a sword and sandal film, and then he makes a poli police film, and then he makes a giallo, and then he makes horror, and then he does um, this and this and this, like he's basically just jumping around into whatever's popular. And Lenzi did that to a certain extent too, with the, the Jolly and Martino did that. But Argento, other than that weird kind of thing b between Deep Red and Four Flies, he kind of stuck to doing the films that he wanted to do. So again, I'm wondering if it's kind of like, you know, he was right in the middle between, you know, kind of these directors that had to 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 actually just bust their ass and work to make make money uh, and that was more important for them than the art versus somebody like Fellini or you know uh, for the in the French was uh, Godard was the director who just did whatever he wanted um, and everybody thought he was brilliant so I mean maybe Argento wanted to be like those guys but it turned out that you know either for one reason or another he just couldn't access that that world and so he stuck with the horror and the, sus the suspense thrillers but then again maybe it was because that's what he liked and kind of you know bava was kind of the same thing like bava was a technical kind of genius as far as um cinema is concerned but he he stuck to the you know the more quote-unquote romantic types of of films like horror films and suspense films and creature films and that sort of thing as opposed to, you know, again, this well, the high art cinema. Argento's younger than all these guys. Okay, right. Argento's this weird middle kid because he's younger than the Lindsay Martino uh, Bava school, but he's also older than all of their kids that went on to make movies. Right. You know what I'm saying? 
So he didn't have to slave away on the spaghetti westerns. You know, he didn't have that. I don't think he ever had that mentality of these are the things you have to work on because you're a filmmaker and this is what you do. I think because his dad was who his dad was, he's like, what do you want to make? And he's like, I want to do this. And he did it. Right. Never had to go back to the well. So he's like in a very unique place in history to be able to do kind of what he did with those first four or five films. It's pretty interesting stuff. Except for that shit one that no one knows about. Yeah, and I can't say it's a shit one because I've never seen it. But But you know what I'm saying. Like, nobody... No one ever talks about it. But the same thing is, like, Four Flies had that same kind of thing because it wasn't necessarily lost, but it hadn't been really put out in wide release like Bird or Deep Red had. And, um there were a lot of people who were wondering if the reason why that movie hadn't been put out was because it wasn't very good. You know what I'm saying? I I don't know about that one though. I mean, I would, I would defer to anybody who knows more about Argento history, but I was under the impression that four flies from a movie that was sent out internationally distributed to the movie figures was just as widely distributed as the other two when it came to home release you never got a chance to see four flies in modern times because there was a particular film um a production company that owned the rights and they weren't putting it out for and it was for a very long time that four flies was only available as a um as a bootleg but for the is it the same deal with that no not as much so bird i think bird got the the most the, the, the widest amount of distribution, but also went direct to video very quickly. Um, once VHS was something, you know, and, and video rental was something. Cat and Nine Tails was um, a little bit harder to find, um, but was in, in Laserdisc. But Four Flies was just completely lost because there was a studio that was sitting on the film for so long. Um, and there was a there. I think there was a French copy, and and uh, there was there was a couple of different international cuts of the film. But um, when I went to see Four Flies in the theater, it was a print that was clearly made for um, American audiences, and it looked fantastic. I mean, it was in great shape. Um, so I don't know if that means that it didn't get much use. Uh, or if it was just properly stored or or what. I don't know what the box office kind of, you know, international box office was on Four Flies, but I, I get the feeling that people feel the way they do about Four Flies now because how long it was that no one could see it unless you really, really tried hard to see it. And then when you did get a bootleg, it was like, it was a really bad, you know, four to three ratio copy of the film. And it really left a lot of the, of the interesting visual parts out of the film. So I don't, One of the you know, I don't really know. Though is, I don't think, no, I don't think Americans nowadays would ever have seen those movies if Suspiria wasn't such a hit. Right. You know, like, I don't think the Jolly movies that he made would have ever, but then again, I don't know even if Italian film would have been big over here nowadays if it wasn't for movies like Suspiria being a hit or Cannibal Holocaust or Zombie. Right. 
is does the Jalo owe a huge thank you to those movies that came out in the late seventies and early eighties to make us give two shits about the movies that came before it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's pretty clear. I think at least for me as an American um, enthusiast, I don't know what it's like for people in, say, Spain or the UK or in Italy. Um, you know, Al probably has a good perspective on this because he probably grew up um, with the films just being around all the time. But for me, um, I think that it's very, yeah, it's, it's safe to say that you know, if you stepped into Giallo as an American uh, after, say, 20 to 30 years after their heyday, you probably managed to get there because you saw Argento's Dawn of the Dead and, or no, I'm sorry, Romero's Dawn of the Dead. And then as a result of Romero's Dawn of the Dead, you might have seen Fulci's Zombie. And then if you saw Fulci's Zombie, you might have seen... Um, something else that came out of Italy that was a little bit more, you know, exploitation horror, but eventually maybe you made your way to Suspiria and probably demons and you saw Bava and then you start researching who are these people. And, um, but, but for me, I mean, personally, um, I saw deep red, uh, before I saw Suspiria. Um, and that was because Suspiria again was a film that was hard to get a copy of, um, you, it wasn't something that was that you could rent. They, they didn't have a VHS copy that was out for rent. And I think there was a, a, a Laserdisc copy of the film floating around somewhere, but um, it, unless you were a film buff, you didn't have a Laserdisc player. They had a, um, they had a, a VHS Suspiria at my video store. That's yeah. how I saw it. Yeah, I'm, but this was, I remember when the VHS of Suspiria came out and they were like, for the first time on VHS, Dario Gento's classic film, Suspiria. And I had read about it in Fangoria and in some of these other horror books, but I had never seen it before. But prior to that was a film called Deep Red, The Hatchet Murders, which had already been released on VHS. And I had seen that. And I'm like, you know, I, I want to see this Suspiria because everyone talks about how great Suspiria is. Now, I think that uh, Phenomena or Creepers was already out um, mm -hmm. on VHS prior to that because that was a little bit more you know, it, Jennifer Connelly was in it and it had Donald Pleasance and it was a little bit more American friendly and Bird with the Crystal Plumage was also out. So in my little circle of friends, um, we and we watched horror movies, we kind of talked about, you know, Suspiria being this kind of holy grail film from this guy, Dario Argento. And again, we knew his name from Dawn of the Dead because he, he collaborated with Romero on Dawn of the Dead. And, um, and so, yeah, I think... I think it's a good point. I think that the reason why the giallo didn't fade into obscurity, uh, because I, I mean, I don't think there's as much um, interest in the, the sword and sandal Italian films or the po police police crime dramas as there are of the giallo, the the gialli films, and I think it's because of their connection with Argento and with horror and with the modern slasher. And with American audiences who, you know, for if you're interested in in the the genre, you want to go back and kind of see well where did it, where did it come from? It, I mean, most people I would think are like me in that you see a film and you know that that film had a crew of people who also made three other films, 
you want to yeah. look for those other three films and then that for just sure. kind of leads you on and on i mean it's, it's the same thing with the spaghetti westerns because of clint eastwood clint eastwood becomes a star here and then the spaghetti westerns he was in are like cool as shit to watch and then you start looking up all the filmmakers and all the people who did all these other movies that are just fucking like it. And it's the same fucking thing, you know? But I don't think the sword and sandal, <laughs> shockingly enough, the sword and sandal thing didn't have that same ump. Right, but Fuji, but Fuji did one called Conquest, and I think I bought the DVD, but Lord knows I don't think I've ever, I even ever watched it, so. Um, but, but, but Fulci, more than anybody else in this group of filmmakers uh, was the most I don't know what, what's the right what's the right adjective I don't know if you want to say prolific or if you want to just say that he was you know a genre slut I mean he basically just did one of each you know give me give me the list and I'll do one of each um, now most people think that Fulci's best films are his jolly um, He's more obviously famous for films like Zombie and and Beyond and Gates of Hell and and so on, but um, you know many consider him to be a very accomplished director. But when you see some of the films he put out, you can tell either that he was just trying to cash in or that he was just a hack. Um, but you know it's hard to understand and explain why a film like Cat in the Brain, which is like one of the worst horror movies ever, uh, is a Fulci film, and then you can compare that to Perversion Story um, with this like super cinescope um, giallo that's set in uh, San Francisco with this crazy avant-garde jazz soundtrack, and I mean it's it's crazy like how different those two films are. Um, but it's it's a really interesting point that you know the, the 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 present kind of informs the past a little bit more than the other way around when it comes to our generation and what we're watching and how did we get here and what are we interested in. So, but again, you know, the, the idea is that you know, uh, in Coven's book, he says, I don't think that Mario Baba ever thought that when he put these films together that he was creating some sort of a some sort of a formula or a movement. Of films, yeah. she, was, she was just doing something that was interesting. Um, well, as far as the '80s moving on and into the '90s, what we have here is that there is work available in this new blossoming um, arena of television, and the pay is steady, and you get to do this kind of stuff. But it can't be like overly violent and overly gory and all this other shit. So I think your filmmakers at this point branch into two camps. The ones who just enjoy making stuff and don't care really what it is they're making and just like working with actors who right. tend to end up going more towards television. And then you have your people who want to push the envelope and want to do weird and crazy shit. And that's where all of your 80s horror directors come from. Right. And I think the Jalo kind of died when they started pushing the envelope further and further. And you have movies like Demons and you have shit like um, House by the Cemetery and, um, as, as it goes on and on and on and on and on. <clears throat> and then by the 90s, what you were having was 
money for films in Italy was almost non-existent. And the biggest 10-4 on this is the movies Argento made. You look at the budgets of the films that he made in the 70s compared to the budgets of the films he made in the 90s, and it's shocking to see really what he was working with. Yeah. But a lot of those guys stayed with television and had amazing careers doing television, and every once in a while would pop out and do a film for fun or something like that. But um, the direct-to-DVD world started eating up a lot of that third-run theater world. Yep. And that kind of brings us to today, where you have people who have come and been so have admired all the Jolly so much and wanting to recreate it that all these people um, are, I don't want to say bastardizing it all, but like they're, they're taking as much from these movies and using it as inspiration and paying homage and all this other stuff up to just completely ripping them off. Right. You know, well, and that's it- kind of what we have now. And, and two points. I think it, it's obviously a lot safer um, if you just go into television because the the TV, uh, the the TV, um, you know, landscape in Italy wasn't for export. I mean, it was going to be just Italian based for Italian audiences and for directors who didn't want to have to deal with. You know, how's this going to handle internationally? And we got to find people to do the overdubs and all that other stuff. It made things a lot easier. And you, like you said, you could work on, you know, the, you could spend more energy on the content and not have to worry about, well, I'm making this for, you know, an English speaking audience. And so I have all these other hurdles I got to get over. But um, the, uh, yeah, going going to the idea of the, the Neo Giallo and... Um, the, the paying homage kind of to a fault almost um, it's <clears throat> I, I don't know I, I haven't seen enough of the films that people consider to be neo giallo I mean I know that you know we can get into a discussion of films that the American um, Hollywood system has put out that were influenced by the genre like dress to kill and um, uh, there's another, Friday the 13th. another what was what was that Friday the 13th Friday the 13th yeah Friday the 13th part 2 I mean you know um, but uh, what was the point that you had made about um, the the uh, the Neo Giallo the uh, like where we are today because I, I they're ripping off yeah I mean I've seen, you know, we we covered the strange color of your body's tears on this podcast, which was great, which is a good film. Um, but you know, I say that with a but simply because, again, we're it's this Here's weird a question that might help this, this weird paradox. Brian, okay, go Brian ahead. Martinez just wrote in a question saying what would you guys consider the very last good Jalo excluding Neo Jali? Oh I don't know. I, I don't I know that I could... what were you gonna say, Tenebrae? 
I don't know. If, I don't know if I can answer it simply because I haven't seen a lot of the later ones. I mean, probably uh, Profumo. Is that where you want to go with that? <laughs> yeah, Profumo, absolutely. <laughs> Profumo would get listed anywhere in any of these anthologies of Jalo films. Um, I don't know where you even found it, to be honest. Um, which is great because it's great. Um, but like, um, you know, you can't talk about um, Jalo in between 1980 and 2000. Um, without talking about Argento, but I'm going to go through this book and see what I can find, and maybe I can answer Brian's question after a little bit of time. But um, I think Argento's trauma was a decent jolly or jalo, which I always get. Uh, you know, we've we've made some assumptions about our audience here in in some of the very basic aspects of the film. We assume that. You know, people know what a giallo is, even though we spent most of this time talking about what a giallo is. But um, we say jolly uh, instead of giallos with an S on the end of it. So um, I don't, I don't know. Um, maybe trauma. Trauma isn't nearly as good as Tenebrae. And if I had to like stop the world after Tenebrae, I would. Yeah, no, Tenebrae, Tenebrae is such an anomaly because it's way, way, way after the, the heyday of the Giallo, but it's one of the best um, Giallo films ever made. Now, there's this film that um, continues to plague me, uh, and continues to um, murder rock, be- beckon me, uh, called The Washing Machine. Uh, and there's the. Uh, there's the poster for it, the washing machine. Uh, we talked about the washing machine, I think, on the very first podcast, and it's from um, maybe 1990. A lot of people say that it's really cool, but yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, it depends on how you classify. Um, if you want to call the Stendhal syndrome a giallo, I don't know if you do or not. Um, but once you know, and even looking through this book. As I get to 1994, um, there really isn't that many in here other than um, Argento stuff. So, um, and then Brian wants to know why don't we have any love for opera? And uh, I'm not a huge fan of that movie. <laughs> no, you know, uh, Brian, these guys um, kind of gave me a new perspective on that one, and. Um, I used to love it, and uh, the last time I watched it and we reviewed it on the, the podcast, um, I kind of saw it for the things that weren't good that these guys were um, highlighting. But I, we broke him. I I don't. Do you like Do you like trauma better than opera? Yeah, yeah, I think so. But too. I think trauma is a. Um, in the vein of or a felone of Twin Peaks which one is? Uh, trauma I think there is so much Twin Peaks influence yeah. in the movie that um, it's yeah, I, just I think you're right like, I, we should do that on a show because I've been wanting to talk about that forever but 
Um, it came out right after Twin Peaks. It has people from Twin Peaks in it. Right. The music sounds like Twin Peaks music. It's just like, it's ridiculous. And yeah, Stage I, Fright. Stage Fright's a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I don't consider Stage Fright a giallo, though. So it's more there, of a slasher. There more, it is. That's more of a slasher to me, but. It's because the guy's dressed up like a bird. Well, it's because there's no mystery, right? Yeah, I mean, there isn't. There's no mystery to it, but um, you know, for for the for the uninformed and for the uninitiated who are still listening, um, again, the, the the thing that I think distinguishes these films from any others, and regardless of what year or what time period we're talking about, is again the mystery aspect and the fact that there's some sort of secret, there's some sort of reveal that's going to come at the end and we're all waiting to see it. And in a lot if of these- If it could be an episode of Murder, She Wrote or Scooby-Doo, it could be a Jalo. If yeah, it and- can't be <laughs> one of those things, it's not. It's interesting that's that, you, you that you say <laughs> Scooby-Doo too, because in Coven's book, he talks about how he divided slasher movies into three buckets. And one of the buckets was the Scooby-Doo slasher where basically somebody's trying to get away with something and they disguise themselves as a ghost, but eventually the detectives figure out who they are. Uh, and it wouldn't have, and, and I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for you meddling kids. Um, <clears throat> but Coven used that as the, in, as the inspiration to do this Jalo book because Scooby-Doo slashers really are the same thing as uh, Jalo. Um, and so, um, you know, we've, we've done on this particular podcast several times, we've decided to go and take a film that isn't considered a giallo and see if it holds up to the scrutiny of the giallo score, uh, criteria on my website, but also the discussions that we have and, and relating it to the other films. And we did, um, Hitchcock's, um, uh what was it which which hitchcock film did we do frenzy frenzy and we did happy birthday to me and we did pieces i think those were the three and the bat and the bat right those are the four non-jolly uh films that we did and if you guys ever want to just see like what a modern television jalo would be um go on netflix and start watching pretty little liars if you could bring yourself up to it because it is so jolly, it's amazing. Is it? Yeah, and but like, it's like a, a, like you have to be like a fifteen year old girl to really be into it. I think, but <laughs> if you have a fifteen year old girl inside of you, like I do, um, it should be no problem. And we will stop there, and there will be no <laughs> jokes that come after that. <laughs> no double no, entendres. So now, I need you to talk about the contradiction of Jalo as high art, sir. Well, we, we kind of did already, right? So okay, okay, good. I, I think we did. Again, it's it's this weird, it's this weird dichotomy of okay, we've got these films that you know, like you said, they certainly had a quality level higher than the shit films that come out now. But at the same time, um, they weren't intended to be scrutinized in a movie, in, in, a, in an academic setting. And they certainly weren't intended to be watched over and over and over again. And I'm sure a lot theater. of people who were in them 
were really hoping that they would just disappear. Right. Oh, Rachel Nisbet recommended Pretty Little Liars to Brian. Yeah, I'm not even joking you. I, on um, I used to have this podcast called a uh, um, Creeperson Cast, and I did. And this is when I first found Chris's Jallo Score site. I did a, um, a thing where I called Pretty Little Liars the um, the Great American Teenage Jallo, <laughs> and I did an episode where I scored. The TV show based on the Jala score criteria. Oh, cool. And it scored quite high. So, yeah. Well, I'll start watching. Did you say it's on Netflix still? Yeah. I mean, it gets a little drab after a few seasons, but. Um, a few seasons? Wow. Okay. Yeah, I think I only watched the first four seasons. I might need to get back in there. But there's only so many angsty teenage girls trying to have sex with adult males that I can handle. <laughs> All right, well, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Why not? I got nothing else to do. So with that being said, next time on the Chow Chow. It's um, Pretty Little Liars. No. We're going to start. I want a Pretty Little Liars report from Chris on the next episode. Okay. But uh, we're going to do, we're going to start our redemption tour and we're going to do a movie that I basically filleted um, when we reviewed it the first time, which was Bay of Blood and a movie that Chris um, wasn't even on the show technically for uh, <laughs> Black Belly of the Tarantula. And um, we are going to give those new watches, and um, hopefully they'll be able to tell us the time. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, just to clarify, we're going to probably do our best to cover both of those films in one episode, since we've yeah. they've already been covered uh, to a, a, a greater extent uh, in the earlier podcasts. Um, but I'm excited to um, watch Bay of Blood because I love that one. And I'm excited to give uh, Black Belly another try. Um, I know that's I'm got every... I'm excited to put the Bay of Blood soundtrack on another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, well, uh, you know, Black Belly has so much going for it. Um, it's totally I fucking why I don't like it, but I'm going to find out. I don't out. either. Maybe I'm going to like it this time. I mean, I got a good copy. It's not you like better, I have a lousy copy. Well, you better copy. come with good fucking excuses. I will. I will. I, I, I'm still looking for that elusive 100-point Jalo film. Um, I don't know if we'll ever get it, if we'll ever find it. And, he, and we talked about this, I think. And um, you know what? I want you to rescore Black Belly too, motherfucker. I want you to <laughs> go through it and see if I think it got a good score, though. But let's see if it gets a better score. Did you hear me say a good, huh, a good, a good score, though? Ring, <laughs> Shaggy. Um, Black Belly of the Tarantula got a 72 on my site. So, okay. Um, but we were talking so, about this at the end of last cast, which is yeah. that, you know, we've gone through 50 films and with the exception of a few obscurities <laughs> that um, have made their way into our uh, episodes, uh, we covered a lot of the classics. So 
I am interested to see, you know, what happens next and whether the ones that we start discovering are are they just going to be copies and 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 kind of rip off not necessarily yeah are they going to be in the vein of um are they going to be like copies that you know are are entertaining it anyway even though they're blatant ripoffs or oh i got some for you sir you're gonna be you're gonna be scared to walk in your bathroom alone <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. But, uh, but yeah, so um, one thing that we didn't do this episode was we didn't go over the listener top 10 of the last 10. Oh. So what I want to do, and I think it might have been because it took a while to get the show up. Um, I only have a few uh, top 10s from you guys. So let's give it another couple weeks here since this is an actual episode show. And give, send it to the contact page or message it to me on Facebook, however you want to get it to me. Um, put in your top 10 of the last 10 that we did, and um, I will have that for you next time. So make sure that you guys go on to the podcast website, jalochowchow.com, to look at all the past episodes because they're not all on the iTunes. Uh, join the Facebook group. If you haven't, just search Jallo Chow Chow on Facebook. Make sure to visit jalloscore.com to look at all the scores and reviews by Mr. Jallo Score over there. Um, <laughs> run over sh- to iTunes and give us a review because those are hard to come by. Yes, they yes. are. They're worth their weight in gold. And Brian wants to know... Have you guys covered the Death Walks films? Yes, we've done them both. Yeah. We actually did all three of the Ercoli films, if you want to include Forbidden Photos as well. Um, Chris also did all of the Areola films. <laughs> I did. They got a good score. Yeah. They got a great score, that's for sure. They could cut glass. The scores were so hard and sharp. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, guys. So until next time, ciao, ciao, everybody. Ciao, ciao, everybody. <laughs>